Well, good morning. There is this uh, large Asian nation off to our west that is uh, currently using AI, artificial intelligence, to track and monitor their people in order to stop crime before it happens. The idea is that if you can track crime or track people's movements, monitor their activities, and figure out some of their motivations, then you can actually stop them before they commit a crime. It's reminiscent of that 2002 movie starring Tom Cruise, Minority Report, if you've seen that. So I read a couple of articles about this interesting dynamic in this large country, and I talked to uh, recently a, a co-worker of mine who, who works in that region, and he was telling me about this one particular district in this country that is perhaps the most secure place in the world right now. Uh, if you live there, you need to register your DNA with the government. Uh, if you live there, uh, every um, doorpost, every um, entrance into a home or an apartment has a barcode on it, and the police can come by, scan the barcode, and then knock on the door and know who should be in that place. All vehicles are tracked by the government using GPS. All kitchen and hunting knives are registered with the government. They watch your internet activity. They watch who you hang out with. Uh, we had a research team, a small group of people who went to a couple of cities in this district. And uh, in one city, they were followed by a drone for the day while they were there. It tracked them all the way through the city, wherever they went. There was this drone hovering uh, not far from them. They're trying, or they are actually making pre-crime arrests, and they have pre-crime detention centers right now in this country. Your actions... And their assumptions about you creates this profile, this identity. Now, that is not new. We do this all the time. <clears throat> your accomplishments, whether you're a great musician, whether you're a brilliant strategist, whether you're a very good craftsman, or you're a wise counselor, whatever it is, your accomplishments build up this identity and this profile, and, and we build into that. But making it predictive is something that is new and different. Now, these accomplishments builds this identity and this profile, and, and that you can be proud about that, you can take pride in that, or you can be ashamed of some of those things. It was grade 12, I was playing basketball. Uh, we had the alumni game at our school. Crowd was just, the gym was packed, the crowd was going crazy. I got this breakaway, and I'm driving down the middle of the key, and I'm like, I'm, like, I'm going to hammer this thing home as hard as I can. And so I, I jump up, sky, park the ball back here, and bring it up to the rim, and I hit the rim dead on. The ball hit the rim exactly dead on. My momentum carried me forward. I slammed down on my back, jammed on the rim, and uh, ever since then, my name became Jamson. It was no longer Warren Jansen, it was now Warren Jamson. And so one of those unaccomplishments brought a lot of shame upon me. Um, how your activities, how your, the things that you do create an identity for you. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning, we want to look at, at this process of, of action creating identity, and we want to see how God actually flips this completely opposite in his kingdom. The question we want to look at today was, Nehemiah's confidence as he moved forward, as he journeyed and as he built and as he led the people, was that confidence built on his activities, his, the things that he did? 
Or was his confidence, as we've sung about so beautifully, built upon who he served and what God said about the people of Israel, about the Jews? Why does this matter? Well, if we get this right, our failures do not need to define us. If we get this right, our confidence doesn't need to waver and oscillate with our circumstances. Our confidence can be sound and sure because it's built upon what God has said about us, not what other people are saying about us. The world says, prove it. Show me that I should notice you. Show me that you're valuable. Prove it. But God turns that on its head and says, reflect it. Come to understand who I am, and if you are a follower of Jesus, take a look at what Jesus says about you, and then go and reflect that. Live that out. Find opportunities to express what is true about you, not what other people are saying or what you've accomplished. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you have an electronic device, pop it open. Let's get to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse... 9. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So let's just step back again here. Pastor Tim's been guiding us through Nehemiah, the first chapter and part of the second. Let's just step back and review the history a little bit. I got this map up here off of Google and and noted a couple of things. So you've got modern-day Iran, modern-day Iraq, and then modern-day Israel over here on your left. So thinking about this, the, the history a little bit, so Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in the late 500s B.C., rose up and, and, and conquered this whole area, and he, he pulled many of Jews into exile. By 586, he had come to Jerusalem, and he destroyed the gates, he destroyed the walls, he burnt down the city, and he took about sixty to 80,000 Jews into exile. But God didn't leave them stranded. God sent to them Ezekiel, the priest, who brings God's comfort and words and presence to the people. It's interesting to note that Ezekiel's name actually means God will strengthen. God will strengthen. He doesn't leave them alone. Well, flash forward a little bit, and King Cyrus and the Persians, now coming from what is present-day Iran. Uh, You see Susa there, the capital where Nehemiah was. King Cyrus from Persia comes and conquers Babylon, conquers and takes over this territory here where where Israel is. And he allows some of the Jews to come back to their home city, to Jerusalem. He allows some of the Jews to resettle in that area. But they didn't have any statehood. They didn't have any national status. They had no political power. Perhaps it's like modern-day Palestine where some of the UN nations recognize them, but a lot of the UN nations don't, and their most powerful neighbor, Israel, doesn't recognize them. That was perhaps the kind of setting that the Jews were feeling in when they were brought back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so in, in 445 BC, Nehemiah's brother comes from Jerusalem, comes over all the way to Susa over here, and he comes and he brings Nehemiah news about the capital. And Nehemiah is 
deeply grieved. He's shamed, and he enters into prayer, and he starts to get this conviction over time that he needs to do something about this. And so he prays for an opportunity, and God gives him an opportunity with King Xerxes, who had come after Cyrus, uh, or I'm sorry, Era. Uh, Artaxerxes, it's a difficult name, he comes uh, to Artaxerxes and he, he lays out this passion, this conviction of his. And Artaxerxes not only gives him permission to go, but gives him provision of what he needs and some protection to follow him back to Jerusalem. So we see here a conviction and provision, but it does not equal instant success. And you know and I know that is so much a part of life. We get a conviction and we might have some ability to do something, but it doesn't guarantee success. And that's what Nehemiah was facing. So let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Dependence upon God does not negate good research and good planning. Nehemiah needed to blend together his, his plan, his conviction, and reality. He needed to go and scope it out and count the cost and see what this was really going to mean. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by the night, by the valley, and inspected the wall, and turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. So here you can see a map of Jerusalem, and, and those gates are listed there. And it's basically, <clears throat> perhaps, like me telling you, I wanted to go to Grouse Mountain, but uh, the Iron Workers Bridge was completely shut down. So I had to go back through the city, over the, the Lion's Gate, and then up and around, and came back down to Grouse. You know, it's something like that. He's just given this play-by-play like, -play of what he was doing and what he had experienced there. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Derision. I like the word, I don't use it. And so I had to look it up. <clears throat> and I looked it up in English, and then I looked it up in Hebrew, and just came to understand this word of it means um, mockery, ridicule, disgrace. And it leads into shame. Not the jams and get over it, just get over it kind of shame. Not that kind of shame, but of, we, we have to do something about this. This is wrong. This is, we feel so much... Uh, Shame about it. We need to rectify it. <clears throat> In the Bible, we, we come to see three effects of sin on Adam and Eve and on the cultures that all float, float out of there. We see three of impact, impacts of sin on us and on, it's reflected in our cultures. And the first one we know very well, the first one is guilt. If you look at Genesis 3 verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve knew. Before this, they had no 
no conscience issues because they were pure and, and holy. But when they stood back from God, when they acted independently, when they rejected his guidance and his, his leading, then their conscience was pricked and they felt guilt. And we can see that stream flowing through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know it. We look at the Bible that way. We read the Bible through a guilt lens. But it sometimes blinds us from, from the other impacts of sin and how they've shaped culture and how other people read the Bible. So the first impact of sin is guilt. The second impact we see in Genesis 3.8 where it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the, line, the trees of the garden. <clears throat> they hid themselves. They were ashamed. They had to cover up. They, they, before that, they were absolutely free and absolutely natural in God's presence. But now they knew shame and they hid themselves. This theme also flows through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's many cultures around the world that place shame at the very heart of their worldview. You go from Morocco to Korea and you can see this all over the place. And that's why we hear in the news about honor killings or about honor suicides. In Japan where we were working, many honor suicides to redeem the honor of the family. That is because of the, of the impact of shame on humanity right at the very beginning. So you have guilt, you have shame, and, and then we also have fear. Adam and Eve were afraid. Genesis 3.10, it says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Before this, they were absolutely free with God, but now they were afraid. They, covered, they cowered in fear and fear was passed on to all of mankind. And so you have the animist cultures of Africa, South America, Southeast Asia, where they're trying to appease these gods because they live in fear. These three things, guilt and shame and fear, are like three building blocks upon which all of the worldviews uh, are established. They're like three base colors in the rainbow. All worldviews can be understood in light of our response, people's response to guilt, to fear, to shame. So Nehemiah, feeling this intense shame, says, let's... We, let's rebuild so that we no longer feel and suffer under this derision. It's not the insecurity of having a broken down wall that drives Nehemiah. It's actually his, the disgrace that he feels for the name of God and for the people of God. That's what really drives Nehemiah. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The confidence builder was God's favor, not Nehemiah's plan. He is God. We are his people. Let's get to it. This was a kairos moment, as Tim talked about last week. Uh, a moment in time that where these things converge, where the conviction and the provision and, and the leading of God and now the hand of God on them, these things all converged and they stepped out and took action. But like I said before, just because you have a conviction and you have provision, it doesn't mean that it's an instant success or a guaranteed success. So in verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, sir, the servant of Angeshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? 
Are you rebelling against the king? It's like, oh, you're, you're building up the wall now? Oh, so you're declaring independence? You're declaring that you're a nation now? You're going to go to the UN and say that everybody needs to respect us now? Is that what's happening here? <clears throat> Conviction, provision, but yet challenge. We see that in many people in the Bible, many stories in the Old Testament. We also see it very vividly and powerfully in the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water for those people that are standing around there. This, the heavens open up and this voice comes down and declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What an event, what a moment. When, when the most important person in the world, creator of, of heavens and earth, has declared that this is my beloved son and with him I am well pleased. What an affirmation of your identity. Go to it. And yet we know right after that, Jesus was led into the desert and he was tempted by Satan. And how did Satan come at him? Matthew 4, verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And after that, if you are the Son of God, jump off the temple and let the angels catch you and, and save you and, and demonstrate it. Prove it. Show it. Show your power. Let us all see it. Prove that you're worthy. Prove that we should follow you. Make this about you. Build your brand. That's what Satan is tempting him with. And the key for Jesus to overcome that temptation was to get right the question of his identity. John Ortberg, in his book Soul Keeping, writes, Significance is about who we are before it is about what we do. Significance is about who we are before it is about what we do. Our activity needs to flow out of our identity. So Nehemiah responds, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. It wasn't, I've got this great plan or... Don't worry about Artaxerxes. I can take care of him. He's not going to believe these guys. Don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. It wasn't that. It was the hand of God has been upon me for good. God's hand was strengthening Nehemiah's hands. God's hand is strengthening your hands. We see this, in, we see this phrase in chapter 2, verse 8, and verse 16, and later on in chapter 6, verse 9. But we also come across it in the Psalms. In Psalm 89, it says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. And then later on in Isaiah 41, we see, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will, uphold, I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our identity creates and leads into our activity. What gave Nehemiah confidence to keep on going? It wasn't his pain. It wasn't the provision. And, and it wasn't even the way the king responded to him. But it was, it was his belief that God is good, that God is in control, that nothing is irreversible, 
that nothing is impossible with God. It was his belief that God's hand was upon him. He wasn't living for a victory. He wasn't trying to do all of these things so that he could get this victory, get this wall built. Nehemiah, in his mind and in his actions, was already living from a victory. God had declared things about him, the people of Israel, about God in this world. And he was living from that victory towards and acting out and or acting from that victory. So this morning I'd like to end <clears throat> by just reminding us of how we can live from victory towards God's will and God's ways in this world. How we can see that his kingdom could come into our world. And we want to do that by remembering what God has declared about us, what God has declared about you. Years ago when we were still living and working in Japan, a guy by the name of Steve Childers came and gave a talk, and I will not forget it. Um, he just made statements of, of the gospel. What is the benefits of, of the cross? What is the benefits of the resurrection? And what has God declared about you? So let me just remind you of what God has said about you. And let's embrace that identity and then live it out in our activity. So what has God said? God has said that you are forgiven. No matter how great your fear of punishment or how condemned you feel, in Christ you are eternally forgiven. Instead of continually punishing yourself for your sins or trying to earn forgiveness or living up to those perfectionist standards, learn to claim by faith God's promise of his eternal forgiveness through Christ's blood. The good news is that you can do absolutely nothing to make God love you more or to make God love you less. If we have this fear of, of constantly moving in and out of God's blessing because of what we do, we'll never act naturally in his presence. God has declared you are forgiven. You can be natural with, in his presence. God also says that you are accepted no matter how debilitating your fear of rejection or your feelings of disapproval may be, because Christ's perfect righteousness has been credited to your account, you are absolutely accepted. You no longer need to fear rejection. You no longer must win the approval of others or build your brand. You don't have to defend your reputation. You can stop trying to be who you are not and embrace what God has said about you. And then try to find ways to live that out, how to reflect that. From that position, you can move towards others with Christ-like love because you're not fearing rejection. Because you know deep down that you are absolutely accepted. You are adopted. No matter how deeply you may have been wounded or damaged by the lack of love, from others in your past, you are now deeply loved. You've been adopted as a child of God and given all the rights and privileges that were previously reserved for his son Jesus. They have been blessed upon you now through faith in Christ. You don't need to live or feel like a spiritual orphan anymore. God doesn't see you merely as a pardoned criminal. God sees you as an adopted daughter, an adopted son. 
You now have immediate access into the Father's presence and the promise of his provision and the the blessing of his discipline for our good. You are adopted and you are also free. God declares that you are free right now. No matter how defeated you may feel in your battle with sin, you are no longer in bondage to it. Although sin's influence will always be with us on this earth, its dominion over your life has been broken by the cross. Although you were once a slave to sin, the good news is that you are now free from that old master. You are now called by God to proclaim that freedom from sin's domineering power over life. No matter what your current struggles are today, there is true hope for lasting change because you are free in Christ. And finally, you are not alone. No matter how alone or powerless you may feel in this life, you are not alone. Through faith in Christ, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to come alongside you, to comfort you, to encourage you, and to guide you. The typical message that we hear in our world is that what you have done or what has happened to you defines who you are. My accomplishments, my history, that makes up who I am. I invite you this morning to reject that message. I invite you this morning to receive what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has stated about you and declared over your life and to live from that new identity, that new creation that you have become. Significance is about who we are before it is about what we do. So what's the first step? Every morning this week, I invite you to to think about one of these truths, one of these declarations. Think about, when you get up in the morning, think about this one thing. I am accepted. No matter what kind of rejections I face, no matter what kind of, what's going on at school or what's going on at my work or what's the dynamics in my family, I am absolutely accepted by the creator of the universe. Remind yourself of that truth and then look for opportunities to be an image bearer, to reflect that to others throughout the day. Do that every day this week. Just choose one of these truths and choose to remind yourself about it and then be an image bearer. Reflect it as you go through your day. If you do not know Jesus, if, you, if these things are not true about you this morning because you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that invitation is open. Come to the altar. Come and meet Jesus here <clears throat> and have these things prayed over you, have these declarations made about you because you can accept these things through faith in Christ today. Let's move from activity leading to identity. Let's flip that around and let's live each day this week from our identity that propels us into being image bearers, into having activity in our lives. Let's pray.